Side 11. Azrafel was still crouched vacantly beside her. At the front of the carpet, Silver stared blankly at nothing. Azrafel, said Kin, bring me, oh, bring me a fully equipped Matrix Drive MFTL ship with the latest model dumbwaiter. Over the con circuit, she heard Marco cackle. The demon said, No. Is that a refusal? We have your lamp. Azrafel shook his head. It is not a refusal, he said. It is a statement. Oysters cannot fly. I cannot bring you your desire. Now crush the lamp if you must. No anachronisms, said Marco. Is that it? The demon paused before answering, as though listening to an internal voice. Seen up close, he too was slightly blurred. Like a 3V picture in the middle of a bad day for sunspots, Kin thought. No anachronisms, he agreed. But the man called Jalo left the world and appeared two hundred light many, many miles away, Kin corrected herself. How? I do not know. Jalo's ship is in distant orbit, said Marco. We could adapt the life system, cannibalize bits out of our lander, and go home in that. It'd take too long. Perhaps not. What about power? A thousand of these magic carpets joined edge to edge. Navigation? Dead reckoning. We'll be aiming at a fifty-light-year sphere from a distance of one hundred and fifty years. No trouble. Neat. And what about silver? Marco said nothing. When the sun came up, it was tinted with green. They flew over a sandstorm half a mile high, which blasted through farms and towns like snow from hell. Marco didn't say much, and Silver was now saying nothing at all. She lay curled up on the carpet, looking at the sky. They thundered over a port called Basra, where the timber of broken ships clogged the streets while the mad sea methodically destroyed the town. Silver said, "'Something is shining on the horizon.' Kin wondered if she could see a faint gleam on the borders of vision. Ten minutes later she was sure. Silver stirred again. "'Leave,' she ordered. "'The Kung must come here, with swords.' "'Marco!' "'I had. Stop the carpet. You can take the horse.' "'But you know what she's asking.' "'Sure. If things get too bad, I'll have to kill her.' "'How could you be so emotionless about it?' "'Why not? Better a dead sapient than a live animal. I agree with her.' "'What'll happen afterwards?' "'He pursed his lips. "'She'll reincarnate on the disk, I guess. "'Better a live human than a dead sh— "'Will you stop talking like that?' "'The gleam turned out to be a high dome, "'welded into the rock of a wide island "'that seemed to be mostly black sand. "'Kin thought she could make out the remains "'of a few ships half buried in the sand. "'They circled it, a mile out at first, "'then moving closer in.' Kin saw a black shape spiral down out of the sky and perch on the dome. "'That does it,' she said. "'Marco, I'm going in.' The Kung's answer was a strangled grunt. Kin spun round in the saddle. A few metres away, Silver was rearing up on the carpet, the fur of one arm bright orange where it had caught the thrust of the sword. Her hand was around Marco's waist, while he had two hands gripping her throat, and between them the sword screamed as they wrestled. The carpet drifted on past. Kin got a brief glimpse of Silver's contorted face, twisted around a saliva-barred mouth. Kin grabbed the lamp. 
Azrafel appeared, standing on air, and watched the silent fighters with interest. Separate them, Kin ordered. No! Marco somersaulted away from Silver, caught her arm in three of his, and threw her over his shoulder. His leg bones bent like springs. Then Silver was over the edge of the carpet, but not falling. She hung at an impossible angle in its safety field, snarling and thrashing at the air. No? I dare not go closer to the dome. I have the lamp, demon. I suggest you do not use it. Kin saw Marco lift the sword and hesitate. Silver picked up leverage on sheer fresh air and hurtled towards him. Shand, Kung, and Carpet disappeared. Kin stared at the empty space. Below the sea roared. There was nothing else around but sea, sky, and dome, and the horse-faced demon hovering over nothing at all. Finally, she said, Demon, what happens if I drop the lamp in the sea? The truth now. Sometimes fish or crabs will brush against it. Their wishes are simple and easily fulfilled. What happened to the carpet? It disappeared, said the demon uncertainly. I know. Why? Things that approach too close to the centre of the world do so. You didn't tell us. You didn't ask me. Where do they disappear to? To? They just disappear. That is all I know. You'll know more soon, said Kin. She shoved the lamp back into her pocket and urged the horse forward towards the dome. Azrafel whimpered. Presently Kin disappeared. Kin awoke at the heart of a galaxy strained through a ruby. Touch told her that she was lying on a floor like polished metal, and an old but hitherto unnamed sense assured her that she was inside something, a building, maybe a cave. Around her a billion pinpoints of red light glowed. They spread away from her in complicated constellations, climbed the invisible wall tens of metres away, and met in the blackness overhead. Sometimes the pattern changed instantly, to be replaced by one equally red and forbidding. It was a pointillist's vision of hell. Then Kin moved, stampede, the lights poured down the walls and clustered around her. She stood up and stamped her foot experimentally. Experiment was the word, and she clung to it. Be rational. Don't go mad. She thought she had been prepared for anything. Robots, lasers, long-headed disc-builders in silver suits, intelligent slimes, anything. But not these lights. It wasn't as though they lit anything but themselves. Get me out of here, she growled. Flash! Now she was standing in an arched corridor, her nostrils filled with the hot metal ozone and oil smell of machinery. The tunnel was brightly lit by a continuous strip overhead. Pipes and cables snaked along the walls, and the floor was a linear maze of rails. There were distant bangs and thumps, and everywhere there was the hum of hurtling electrons. Kin picked a direction and walked, carefully avoiding anything that looked highly electric. So, she told herself, this is the works. I'm down among the cogwheels of the universe. But it's all wrong. The technology looks ancient. Cogwheels is about right. Good grief. She was halfway past an alcove giving off from the main tunnel. There was a movement in there. Kin started to run for cover, then thought, what the hell? It was a robot. A big one shaped the best shape for a robot. Square. One Waldo arm was groping in a square hole in the alcove's metal wall. A square panel lay on the floor. 
the arm clicked back. It held something small that Kin couldn't quite see properly, which it dropped into a hopper bolted onto the robot's side. A drawer slid out just above the hopper, and this time Kin got a good view of the objects nestling in its padded interior. The arm waved uncertainly above them, then selected one gingerly and carried it into the hole. While the machine was engaged in its mysterious activities, Kin strolled forward and picked one of the objects out of the rack in the drawer. It was about the size of an egg. One end was studded with hundreds of pins, and inside was a filigree of wires, tubes and grids. Kin had seen things like it in a museum. It was a valve, a sort of Neolithic integrated circuit. Only this was a valve such as might be built by someone who had never developed a transistor, so that more and more ingenuity had been devoted to perfecting the existing technology. It made Kin think of Eftnic computers. The Efts had never discovered electronics, but they needed computers for their complex religio-banking organisations. So an Eftnic computer was a thousand highly trained Efts, each one handling a small part of the math. It worked. But she'd be dipped in dogshit before she believed that the disc was built by a thermionic valve technology. The robot's arm whirred out of the wall. The panel was picked up and slotted into place with surprising speed. Almost before Kin could react, her new friend was rumbling off along the tunnel. It moved at a fast walking pace. She followed. She would survive. If they were going to kill her, they would have done it already. She'd live. Provided she didn't bank on it, she'd live. Once they passed another cuboid robot, wielding some kind of tool over some kind of exposed circuitry. It could have been a soldering iron. It could have been a printed circuit. Kin couldn't stop to check. Then Kin's robot reached a robot-shaped slot in the wall. Kin had a brief glimpse of sockets at the back of the slot before the robot reversed in with all the painstaking care of a fornicating porcupine. It stopped humming. Patently, the repairman had gone dormant. Kin considered for some time. The tunnels seemed endless. She could wander around in them for days. Then she'd die. But there was an alternative. She went back down the tunnel until she found the soldering robot. Wrenching off one of its arms was difficult, but she managed. She used it to hit the thing until it stopped humming. As an encore, she tossed the arm at the exposed circuitry, which sparked satisfyingly. Then she waited. When a small hemispherical robot repair robot rolled up a few minutes later, she overturned it. It hummed at her reproachfully. The next one was a pear-shaped, multi-lensed blob travelling along a rail near the ceiling of the tunnel. Kin tried to bring it down with pieces of robot, but it swung away hastily. At least she had made her presence felt. Someone must repair the robots that repaired the robot repairing robots. All it took was time. Hours passed before a tank-like machine arrived. It was dented and lacked panelling, and bore the stumps of various delicate manipulatory appendages. If this was the ultimate repairer, Kin supposed, then sheer time could have caused its battered state. On the other hand, the fact that Marco was sitting on its hull with a robotic arm trailing wires in each hand could have had something to do with it. Perhaps there just aren't any facilities for dealing with humans who get into the machinery, said Kin. Marco grunted, but didn't look up from his work. He was doing something Neolithic with the length of robot innards, using the small repair hemisphere as a hammer. There must be, he said. This world must be studied with hidden air ducts, ventilators, power shafts. Humans poke into everywhere. Anyway, we were brought here, remember? 
subsequently to ignore us is impolite. He stood up. Coming. Where? Anywhere with delicate circuitry. This, he waved a robot limb, is insulated for short circuiting. And the other thing, asked Kin, her heart sinking. It was a connected series of arm sections, terminating in a crude but lethal blade. Marco hefted it experimentally. Ah, it's a weapon, obviously. You were maybe expecting to meet some anti-personnel robots, Kin said icily. Marco had the decency not to meet her gaze. I was thinking of silver, he said wretchedly. Well, do you imagine she's found anything to eat yet? And have you got any better ideas? He set off along a tributary tunnel and called back, Anyway, it can't have escaped your notice that these tunnels are lit. Robots don't need light. Kin shrugged. Perhaps soldering robots needed light? A little light destruction to attract attention was one thing, however. Intelligent action in the circumstances. But Marco looked ready to smash the whole disk. In the distance she saw him hacking at cables. This wasn't action to attract attention. This was Marco versus the universe. What was happening up on the surface? A plague of flies? A rain of frogs? All the seas running dry? The extinction of the dodo? Now she was running. Marco was a terrible figure wreathed in smoke, hacking at a solid cliff of planet-sized circuit. There was a jerkiness about his movements that told Kin all she needed to know. Marco had gone mad, or at least had gone kung. She stopped when his blade swept a few inches from her throat. "'They want to play games, eh?' he croaked. "'Put us on the spot. Watch our reactions, eh? I'll show them!' One free hand swept his glove into a circuit board, which exploded. "'I'll show them!' Kin swayed back, her eyes on the tip of the blade. Then a movement to the right of Marco's private smoke cloud made her look away. Marco saw her expression and hesitated for a fraction of a second too long. Silver leapt. Marco disappeared as the huge paddle-like arms swept round in a bone-grinding hug, then appeared again with three arms flailing at the Shan's head. Silver screamed, and one foot came up with claws out to disembowel the enemy. Marco's bowels had already gone with the rest of him for Silver's eyes. While the Shan staggered across the floor, clawing at the demon atop her, Kin saw Marco's fourth arm swing up with his pike. It twirled gracefully, the blades drifting through the hot air like the scythe of death. Then it buried itself in a power cable. There was a sound like the snapping of locusts. Silver and Marco appeared for a moment like a tableau, Silver a big fluffy ball as every hair stood out from her body. Kin scrabbled on the floor for Marco's anti-disc weapon with its insulated handle. It took all her strength to knock the vibrating pike out of his hand. When it came away, the two aliens collapsed. Aliens, she thought. I called them aliens. Oh, shit. She knelt down and sought for signs of life. Something vague was happening in Silver's chest, but she didn't know where to even begin looking for either of Marco's hearts. The lights overhead dwindled to a sickly orange glow. There were footsteps behind Kin, strange, rattling steps. She turned, still crouching, to see the tall figure that had appeared behind her. The most obvious thing was the weapon that was sweeping down towards her. Instinctively she flung up an arm, which was still holding Marco's club. The scythe hit it hard and shivered into pieces. Kin started to laugh. The thing in front of her was a skeleton in a black bathrobe. 
grinning perplexedly at the wooden handle that now had no blade. Who were they trying to scare? The scythe handle in death's white claws flowed. What it became was at least appropriate to the age of genocide, and Kin had time to wonder where they had found the pattern. There were two rows of oscillating teeth and a brisk little engine. A power scythe. Kin had used them herself to clear scrub on new worlds. Death advanced. Had he lunged, Kin wouldn't have survived, but ancient habits die hard. He swung instead, and Kin dived forward. She heard the power scythe crash down behind her and gyrate across the floor as she stared up into eyeless sockets. Struggling, she brought one knee up, uh, a pointless tactic that merely jarred her kneecap. Death had no balls. A necklace of bony fingers closed around her throat. She lashed out with the back of her hand, willing the blow home. It hit death in the face, and then there was something like an explosion in a domino factory. Kin was standing alone. There was a black robe on the floor in front of her, and a few pieces of bone scattered around. They disappeared in a series of small thunderclaps. A larger one marked the disappearance of Marco and Silva. Kin disappeared too. A minute later, a couple of cuboid robots trundled along the tunnel and started to clean up the mess. Now she was in a... No, she said. No more, I give in. Do you know how long it was since I last had a drink? A glass of water appeared hovering in the air in front of her. Kin wasn't particularly surprised. She caught it gingerly and drank it. When she tried to hang the glass in the air, it plummeted down and smashed. Now she was in a... call it a control room. The disc control room. This had to be it. It was surprisingly small. It could have been the flight deck of a medium-large ship except that a ship would have had more screens and switches. This one had one screen and one bank of switches, in front of a deep black chair. Over the chair was what could have been a computer-link helmet. Oh, no, she said. Not me. I'm not putting that on. The screen flickered and a word appeared. Bets. Kin moved forward and got a better view of the chair. It was a disturbing, complicated shape, and looked almost alive. Its occupant was dead. Not offensively dead, because the air in the room was crisp and dry, and had expertly mummified him, but undeniably dead. If he had believed in reincarnation, he'd come back as a corpse. There was an old wound on one withered arm. It didn't look fatal, but there were antique bloodstains on the floor. He could have bled to death, but that seemed a derisive death for a disc master. If he was a disc master. Somehow Kin had never brought herself to think of the disc's overlords as human, but the man in the chair was human enough. Given a heavy shave and a fresh skin, he could have called anyone cousin. The screen in front of the chair blurred, then produced a word. It hung in front of Kin, glowing pitifully. Help! Marco crouched in the semi-darkness when he next heard the voice. After a while he surfaced from the mists of rage enough to realise that it was talking to him. It was familiar. The ape-descended woman? Ken Arad? he croaked. Marco, where's Silva? the voice insisted. Marco's eyes felt like fire pits, but the light from the millions of red glows around him suited his vision. He saw a shape a few metres away, eclipsing a constellation on the floor. The bear thing is here. She is breathing. 
Marco, said the air, I don't know how good I am at this thing. You'll have to help. Don't move. The air stirred in front of the Kung, and there was a knife. Three of Marco's hands caught it before it hit the ground. In the red light he stared dully at the jewel-encrusted handle. "'Don't waste time,' said the ape voice. "'I want you to cut a piece out of silver. Don't be too enthusiastic. Hide will do, but the flesh would be better.' Memories were dripping into Marco's mind. He looked at the knife, then thought about silver. "'Not on your life,' he said flatly. "'Do it. The next knife will arrive at speed if you don't, and you'd better believe me.' With a roar of rage and frustration, Marco bounded forward and slashed at Silver's arm. The big body may have quivered slightly. "'That'll do. The blood on the knife will do. Let go the knife, Marco. Let go of the knife. Let go of the knife!' Marco was thirsty. He hadn't eaten in memory. His skin itched in the warm, dry air. He was damned if he'd let go of a weapon. If he thought about it at all, that was what he thought. "'Okay, we'll do it the hard way.' There was just something about the voice that made Marco loose his grip on the handle. Thus it was that when the knife popped out of existence, it merely stripped the flesh of his palm, instead of taking his hand off at the wrist. Methodically he gripped his wrist to stop the blood flow, and let the pain batter outside his brain. He was still staring at the wound when a rush of air and a thump made him look up. Something long and bloody was lying on the floor beside Silver, and the Shan's arm was moving slowly. It fumbled around the meat, gripped it, pulled it dreamily to a mouth strung with saliva. Silver ate. "'Where are we?' said Marco at last. Kin's voice said, "'I'm not entirely sure. Are you okay?' "'I shall like a drink, and some food. You had me slice the Shan's to get a protein sample.' "'Yes, don't move.' Something like a squashy bulb of water appeared beside Marco and bounced limply on the floor. He picked it up and bit into it with a shameful haste. "'Food now,' said Kin. Another bulb, filled with red sludge, rolled obscenely across the floor. Marco tried it. It tasted like solid boredom. "'It's the best I can manage,' said Kin. "'About the only damage you did was upset the Disc Master's dumbwaiter circuits. I've got robots repairing them, but until then the menu can just about manage to be unexciting. "'Silver has fared better,' said Marco indistinctly. "'I told you I hadn't got time for niceties,' said Kin. "'She's eating shand, cultured from her own cells. Don't ask me how it was done in seconds. I only gave the order. It might be an idea not to tell her, though.' "'Yes. You are in a position of influence.' "'You could say that. Good. Get me out of here!' There was a pause. Then he heard Kin say, "'I've been giving a lot of thought to that.' "'You've been giving a lot of thought to it?' "'Yes. I've been giving a lot of thought to it. You're in a sort of hold-for-study chamber. There's no way in or out except by teleportation, and if you knew what I know about that, you'd rather stay in there and starve. I daren't cut in in case you're harmed. So all things considered—' A long shape exploded into being a meter from Marco and landed heavily. He picked it up and looked at it suspiciously. "'It looks like an industrial molecule stripper,' he said. "'It is. I suggest you use it with caution.' Marco grimaced in the hellish light and pointed the thing. A section of chamber wall became a fine fog. 
He switched off hastily and looked around for Silver. The Shand was kneeling, holding her head. "'How do you feel?' said Marco in a concerned tone. He held the stripper lightly, not quite pointing it at Silver. The Shand squinted at him vaguely. "'Odd things have been happening,' she began. Marco helped her to her feet, a more or less token gesture since she weighed ten times his weight, and he needed one hand to keep the stripper not quite pointing at her. "'Right now, can you walk?' She could stagger. Marco peered out of the chamber into a dimly lit tunnel. Two small cuboid robots were fretting over the still-settling dust of the wall. He glanced back at Silver and opted to point the stripper's flared nozzle at a questing Waldo. "'Lay off the hardware,' said the robot, backing away. "'Kenarad,' said Marco. "'Marco, that weapon is for your own peace of mind, but if you use it I'll rip your arms off from here, and I can.' Marco considered this for several moments, while Silver climbed laboriously out of the chamber. Then he shrugged with all four shoulders and let the weapon thump on the floor. "'Monkey logic,' he said. "'I'll never understand it.' "'I thought you thought you were human,' said the robot with Kin's voice. "'So? All the thinking in the worlds doesn't change some things.' "'Cogito ergo kung,' said the robot. "'Follow me, please.' They fell in behind it as it rolled off along the tunnel. An hour later they were still walking. They had crossed wide metal chasms on lattice bridges and crouched in alcoves as giant machines thundered down side tunnels. On one occasion the little cube had beckoned them to follow it onto a lift platform. At the next level down the lift stopped again, and a dozen humming golden cylinders had drifted on, smelling of ozone. They followed narrow walkways between topless, towering machines which boomed. "'Crows,' said Silver. "'Ha!' The Shand grinned. "'Didn't you ever see Forbidden Planet? Human movie. They remade it five, six times. I had a walk-on part in one before I went to college.' "'Can't say I recall anything.' "'I had to thump doors, mostly, and roar. I uh, had to share my dressing-room with the robot, too. He was human.' "'A human robot?' "'The rest of the cast were actor robots, you see, "'but there was this robot in the plot, "'and they couldn't find a robot who could act robot-like. "'They had to hire a human. "'There was a very impressive scene "'inside a big machine built by the Krells, I think it was. "'Just like this, Krells, you understand, "'being fictional creatures invented for the purpose of the movie.' "'Silver broke off when she saw Marco's face. "'He sighed.' "'We have been around humans too long, you and I,' he said. "'We have been tainted by their madnesses.' "'I thought you were brought up on Earth. Are you not legally human?' "'My race papers are up there, and the rest of the ship. Big deal,' Silver grunted. "'Consider yourself cosmopolitan, then.' "'What does that really mean, my friend?' It means the voluntary subjugation of one's racial awareness in the light of the basic unity of sapient kind. Marco growled. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that we learn to speak languages that monkey tongues can handle, and we get along in their world. Ever see a human act like a Shand or a Kong? No, Silver conceded. But on the other hand... Kin Arad is free, and we were imprisoned. Humans always take the lead. Humans always get what they want. 
I like humans. My race likes humans. Maybe if we didn't like humans, we'd be dead. What's that? Marco followed her gaze. Half a mile away, a tower loomed above the city-sized machines. It seemed to be made of giant balls stuck one atop another, and it glowed dull red. Silver pointed out the robots that clustered on the gantries that surrounded it, but Marco had to be content with a vague, eye-watering impression of something huge and ominous. "'A giant coffee percolator?' he hazarded. Silver shouted at the little robot, which had rolled on ahead. It reversed neatly. Silver indicated the stack of spheres that disappeared into the roof of the cavern. "'Basically,' it said in Kin's voice, "'it's a simple device for heating rock to melting point and ejecting it under pressure.' "'Why?' said Marco. "'Volcano,' said the robot. "'All that,' said the Kung, "'to give the disc volcanoes? Madness!' The robot rolled away. "'You say that now,' it said. "'You wait till you see the earthquake machines.' The journey under the disc took two days, as far as Marco and Silver could calculate. Sometimes they rode, crouching on flat trucks that glided along low tunnels with agonizing slowness, but more often they walked, climbed, inched along ledges, ran like hell across switchyards, where sub-disc machines shunted and thundered on errands of their own. Sometimes they came across dumb waiters, perched incongruously in the whirring underworld. They had a new look, unlike their surroundings, which were worn, well looked after, carefully maintained, but worn. Marco raised the subject while they were sitting with their backs against a dumb waiter. "'I know,' he said. "'If the disc people had an industrial revolution and then took a look at the underside of their world, it'd scare the life out of them.' Silver chewed on another mouthful of what Marco presumed was lightly cooked shand. "'It seems remarkably remiss of the disc-builders to allow this dereliction,' she said. "'I have noticed quite a number of obviously broken-down devices. Surely they could be repaired.' "'Who repairs the machines that do the repairing?' said Marco. "'A machine like the disc must blow a whole lot of fuses in a hundred years or so. What do you do when the robot that repairs the machines that make the parts for the factory that builds the robots that service the Waldos that make the fuses crashes its cog? Unless you get periodic servicing from outside, the disc gradually breaks down. We could ask the robot, said Silver. It was a sick joke. The robot would answer any direct question about the mechanical scenery. They had been treated to a ten-minute lecture on the tide regulation machinery, for example, but ignored all the others. Marco had toyed with the idea of prizing its lid off with something, but allowed caution to get the better of him. "'The place with the red lights must have been out near the disc rim,' said Silver. "'I have a feeling we're approaching the hub again. Perhaps we can ask Kin.' The robot, which had been sitting silently a few metres away, rolled forward. "'We're refreshed?' it asked cheerfully. "'Will you all proceed?' They stood up stiffly. The cuboid robot led them along a catwalk that opened into a wide, circular gallery, brilliantly lit. Most of the light came from the luminous mist overhead, but an appreciable amount came from the tiny, actinic sun. It floated perhaps a hundred metres over a perfect relief model of the disk's surface, several hundred metres across. Except that relief maps didn't have tiny clouds— trailing minute shadows across the land. 
Marco had never seen them with active volcanoes either. There was no railing to the gallery. The disc map glittered a metre below it, sunlight glinting off seas that looked disconcertingly real. Marco stared down for a long time. Then he said, "'I give up. It's beautiful. What's it for?' "'One thinks of architects' models,' rumbled Silver. "'However, let me draw your attention to a flaw. "'See over there, just beyond the inland sea?' Marco squinted and gave up. "'No,' he said. "'The disc-builders either had damn good eyesight, "'or all this was just for show.' "'He looked around for the robot. It wasn't there. "'We wish to view the disc-map more closely.' "'Silver was saying to the empty air. "'Something like a flying slab of glass "'glided around the map from the far side "'and hovered in front of her. "'She stepped aboard gingerly. "'Under her weight it didn't even wobble. "'I see it,' said Marco. "'But I don't believe it. "'How did you do it?' "'Just a knack,' said Silver. "'I think I'm getting to understand "'the way things work round here. "'Coming?' The glass carpet responded neatly to Silver's spoken directions. It skimmed across the map mere centimetres from the clouds. Marco had a strange urge to reach down and stir some into a cyclone. The map was frighteningly real. If he leaned over and touched it, would a giant hand appear in the disk sky? When the Shan spoke again, he looked down obediently through the glass. There was scarred land down there, burned and broken, and in the centre of it was a neat round hole. Later Silver found that raising the platform slightly magnified the scene immediately beneath. There appeared to be no limit to the resolving power. There were people down there, microscopic figures that were almost immobile. Only almost. Every second the scene flickered, and the figures took up slightly different positions. Marco spent an age entranced at the sight of a homunculus cutting wood. Flick! the axe in the air. Flick, biting into the tree. Flick, back in the air. And a wedge of raw wood bitten by magic out of the trunk. It could be done, he said half to himself. All you'd have to do is correlate sensory inputs and keep reprojecting them as a hologram. You'd need many inputs. Billions. You'd have to plug into the cognitive center of every living creature. Have you noticed the blank patches? Maybe our bird wasn't looking in that direction at the time. Silver nodded gravely and looked around the big map hall. Presumably the map of the disk also includes its own miniature disk map, she said slowly. She met Marco's gaze with a quiet smile. Then she ordered the platform to go to the map's hub. Neither doubted that the map hall was at the hub. They looked down at the dome. Silver tried some commands, which appeared to have no effect, so she lowered the platform. Staring down between their feet, they saw earth and metal melt and drift aside. Disc machinery rose and faded away. There was something now, the edge of something. There was a little round disc. At its centre was a grey and white speck, which resolved into two figures. One was big and furry, the other wiry and thin as a twig. Both were staring intently at something between their feet. Flick! The wiry one was looking up now at the miniature gallery that encircled the map of the map. Flick! There was a figure there, 
Flick. It raised a hand. Flick. End of side 11.